You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Since it began to form thousands of years ago, coastal Louisiana has been one of the most important areas for wintering waterfowl in North America and the world for that matter. But as anyone familiar with waterfowl and wetlands knows, Louisiana in modern times has been the epicenter of some of our greatest and longest standing challenges for wetlands and waterfowl. And as such, there are a tremendous number of stories and issues to discuss from that region. Today's episode will feature another one of those many stories. Today, we're going to be talking about a subregion of the Louisiana coast that stands out as a rather unique area. It's often held up as a prime example of how historical marsh building occurred in that landscape and proof that those processes still work if we have the hydrology in place to enable them. That place is the Atchafalaya Delta. We're going to discuss some of those marsh building processes, but we're also going to talk about the historical abundance of waterfowl on the Delta and how it changed through time. And we're going to tell some stories based on personal observation, experience, and some data that offer potential explanation for these changes. To help me with this story, I'm happy to welcome in two guys that I have known and been friends with for over 15 years. Mike Carlos, Director of Conservation Programs for the Western portion of DU Southern Region, and Larry Reynolds, Waterfowl Program Manager for Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. Hey, Mike. Larry, you are you're kind of a repeat offender, we might say, on the, on the podcast. So we're going to get to your introduction here in a minute. But Mike, I, I want to jump to you and have you provide a brief introduction to your, your professional background and just inter- introduce our listeners to, to yourself and what you do for Ducks Unlimited these days. Okay, great. Thanks. Uh, well, so I've retired from wildlife and fisheries. I had a career about 28 years, started in 1985 full-time. Uh, and was first assigned to Marsh Island Wildlife Refuge. I worked there for eight years and and then moved over to Chafalaya Delta as a supervisor there. And I, I managed that area for five years uh, and then moved on, um, kind of took a stint with state parks and then another stint within RCS doing coastal restoration and then came back to wildlife and fisheries uh, in 2004. Um and stayed there till 2014. In my last five years, it was kind of in administration in Baton Rouge. So, uh, but mostly, most of my work uh, was involved with coastal operations and the WMAs and refuges along the coast. Um, so that's, you know, and then I started out as at Rockefeller Refuge as student worker, did that for some time and got to work with some of the, the great legends, Ted Joannon and uh, Larry McNeese, some of those guys, Dave Richard. So, um, a lot of fun in that. And then moved over, took an early retirement 
uh, to come to DU, start out as manager of conservation programs back in 2014, in January 2014, so uh, almost seven years ago, and then moved into the director position about three years ago. So um, with that, I, I oversee uh, our conservation programs, the engineering and the biologists that uh, we cover South Louisiana, Texas, New Mexico, and Oklahoma. Thank you, Mike. I, I wanted to I wanted to jump in. I, I wanted to jump in at the beginning, but I but I chose not to because I wasn't going to let you finish. But then I wanted to clarify, and this is sort of second nature to the three of us in these conversations that we've had through the years, having worked together so closely. You started out saying you're retired from wildlife and fisheries. When you said wildlife and fisheries, you're talking about Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. That I, I wanted to make sure that was clear. I, I don't think you ever said that that your first. Uh, your first work there in Louisiana was actually with LDWF. So I just wanted to make sure we connected that dot for our listeners. So um, Correct. That, Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's kind of a neat aspect of this particular conversation because, like I said, the three of us work so closely together that we know what one another is thinking and when they're saying these things. But I, uh, part of my responsibility here, I guess, is to ensure that we're communicating that to our listeners. And so, Larry, uh, as I mentioned, you've been on the podcast here several times before, so I'm not going to ask you to go through your entire uh, career history, but just briefly for those that may be tuning in for the first time or uh, that may be relatively new to our podcast series, tell people what you do for wildlife and fisheries these days. Uh, I'm the waterfowl program manager for the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. Um, I've been in that position since 2008. Um, I actually started my career here in Louisiana uh, with the Department of Natural Resources uh, doing coastal wetland restoration. And I worked in coastal restoration for six years before moving over to the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries as the North American Waterfowl Management Plan Coordinator in 2005. And then I took over the program in 2008. And uh, uh, I've been in that position since 2008, and I intend to finish my career there. Well, that's that's good, Larry. And so it's actually this is one of the episodes that I'm lo- have been looking forward to the most because, as I've said, we've worked together a lot. This is a topic as we get into it that three of us actually know a fair bit about. So, um, yeah, and I know the the stories here are pretty intriguing, and I'm confident that our listeners are going to appreciate them. Uh, we will eventually get into the, the meat of this discussion about the Atchafalaya Delta changes in waterfowl numbers through the years. But but first, Larry, I thought that it might might be appropriate uh, to give a brief recap of the results from the November Aerial Waterfowl Survey. That's usually what we have you on the podcast to to discuss. Um, And so we are recording this episode here in the week of Thanksgiving, but I know you flew the aerial surveys a couple of weeks ago. So they're a bit dated, I you know, a couple of weeks dated at this point, but I nevertheless wanted to give you an opportunity to provide a brief recap of what you saw during your surveys. Well, it's always good to to know where we started, Mike, and uh, and we all we always fly this survey um, the week before our earliest duck season opens, typically in the coastal zone and or the west zone, and uh, and we flew this survey that week, and it was I, I guess it's pretty easy and simple to say it was the lowest on record. Uh, since we began this survey in 1969, we've never counted fewer ducks um, than we counted on November 9th through the 12th when we flew this survey. Only 855,000 
Uh, only the second time that this survey has been below 1 million birds. Um, but the, the previous lows in 2008, 2013, and last year, 2019, at, at 1.04 million are the, the four lowest surveys on record. Um, the, the survey areas, southeast Louisiana, southwest Louisiana, and Catahoula Lake were all down. Um, the, uh, the count in southwest Louisiana was the second lowest on record for this survey. Uh, in southeast Louisiana, it was the lowest since 2009 uh, when we had record rainfall in October and river levels were, were really high and the habitat was just flooded out. Um, Catahoula Lake has also been flooded from the, the hurricane-related uh, rainfall, and it had just fallen to back into um, management targets. Uh, so the water level wasn't bad, but all of the great moist soil vegetation that we reported on in September had been inundated. Um, the, the, the resources looked pretty compromised uh, from that standpoint, and very few ducks were seen on Catahoula Lake. So it was, uh, um, it was, it was a widespread, poor survey result um, to, uh, uh, to start our, our regular duck season. Larry, how many hurricanes or tropical storms did we have impact Louisiana coastline this year? Was it three or four? Well, I think we had five named storms that that impacted. Obviously, um, Hurricane Laura and Hurricane Delta um, were the biggest ones that that pounded Southwest Louisiana. Um, actually, a direct hit on some of the best waterfowl habitat in that region of the state. Um, but then we then we had uh, Hurricane Sally and then uh, and then uh, Hurricane Beta brought a lot of rainfall and storm surge and saltwater intrusion to the marshes in southeast Louisiana. So um, it's it's been a rough year for those of us on the coast. Man, there's been so many this year, uh, as you say. It, it's, been, it's been a tough year, and, and I hated to see that. Uh, you guys still live down there, but we had lived down there for 13 years, and just, uh, man, just uh, yeah, hate that so much for all the people and all the habitats in that that region. I, I was actually I had the had the good fortune of being down in southeast Louisiana for a couple of weeks here recently, uh, doing some fishing, and I was actually down there the week that you were flying the survey, Larry. And I can attest to how the water levels were very high in the marsh, and unless you're a diving duck, there weren't weren't very many groceries that were going to be accessible to you. And I think your I think your surveys sort of bore that out. Most of what you saw in Southeast Louisiana was divers. Is that do I have that right? Yeah, that's correct. In fact, it was only the diving duck species, uh, scop and ringneck ducks, that were at or above their long term averages. All other species uh, were below long term averages, except for model ducks. Uh, we saw a nice increase in model ducks uh, from nineteen thousand in November of 2019 to 27,000 uh, this, this November. And so that's at least a hopeful sign. That's it's similar to what we saw in September, um, but we're still far, far below long-term average for that species. 
Yeah, well, we'll take all the good news we can get for that species. That is for sure. Amen. Um, let's see. So, so it's been a, a obviously a tough year and a tough start to uh, the waterfowl hunting season there in, in Louisiana. But I know both you and Mike were able to get out, and you're giving it your best shot to try to chase some of these birds. And so we may cover that at some other time. But but right now, I did want to uh, transition to our discussion. I just thought it would be appropriate to give a bit of a, a of a recap of those waterfowl survey results. So again, partly because that's what people expect from you on the podcast, Larry, but also uh, to, to provide a brief glimpse at some of the most recent data out of Louisiana. Uh, so, the, you know, the topic here at hand is going to focus on the Atchafalaya Delta, also the Wax Lake Delta, and we're going to tell people exactly what those are. But this conversation um, originated as a result of an email, which I think actually followed your distribution of some of your waterfowl survey results or the distribution of waterfowl survey results from a colleague of ours, Dr. Joe Marty, uh, there at Rockefeller. They, they fly aerial surveys across some of the state managed areas. And I think the observations were that there were some pretty uh, some low numbers on some of the areas and long term, there were some pretty noticeable declines in waterfowl abundance. And one of the questions that this little email chain generated was specific to the Atchafalaya Delta that a person inquired about, you know, do we really, do we know what's going on with the Atchafalaya Delta? And, and the reason that might be of interest, uh, that particular area might be of interest is because as I introduced at the outset, that's an area that provides a quite a contrast to many other areas along the Louisiana coast where we think about degrading marsh and marsh loss and uh, in the southeast Louisiana and southwest Louisiana. But the Chafalaya Delta and Wax Lake Delta is an area where we're actually seeing marsh creation. Marsh, marsh is continuing to grow and expand annually. Uh, and so when you see waterfowl numbers there in the Chafalaya Delta decline, you start thinking, well, what the heck's going on there? We can't can't really totally um, attribute that to a change in, in habitat. So that's what generated some responses from the two of you, as well as some of our other colleagues. And I, you know, the, the stories that you were telling were, I found very interesting and thought they would be to our listeners as well. So to get this started, uh, Mike, I want to get you uh, to provide our listeners with a, with an introduction to the Atchafalaya Delta, as well as the Wax Lake Delta. Where are they? What are they? Uh, what do we need to know about them to set this conversation up? Um, so Atchafalaya Delta Wildlife Management Area is a wildlife management area that was established in 1979 by Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. And it came about essentially as a result of uh, the Delta prograding, right? So the Wax Lake is over, is just to the west, um, which comes out of Wax Lake Outlet. And that starts off, essentially the Wax Lake Outlet was dredged uh, back in 1942. And it was from Six Mile Lake up in the, in the basin, kind of north of, uh, well, northeast of, of, or east of Morgan City, and uh, west of Morgan City, sorry, and dredged 15 mile cut all the way to the Gulf, which essentially was a Chafalaya Bay. So in those days, it was a Chafalaya Bay, right? There was no, it was much like Vermilion Bay and some of our other bay systems. It was the bay shore. This was, this was dredged out into open bay water, right? And then over time, we had the big flood of 73, of course, of the Mississippi River, and that filled in a lot of the basin and, and, and really forced more of the sediment to the south, both through the Atchafalaya River and through Wax Lake Outlet. 
And the Atchafalaya River is the navigate, maintain navigation channel by the Corps of Engineers. Um, so they had to start dredging and dumping that material somewhere, right? And this was before it became a WMA. Um, so the, the Corps was just dredging and, and depositing, and they were depositing on the west side of the channel, uh, close to the Bay Shore, the historic Bay Shore, and that's what we would call Big Island now. And now it's a two-mile island, two-mile long and about a mile wide. In some places, it's over 10-foot elevation. And somehow, back in the day, you know, that that's state land, right? So if it's if you start getting emergent land in an open bay system, that becomes state land. So the state owns it. And then Wildlife and Fisheries signed into a, essentially a free lease to make it a wildlife management area and to manage it for duck hunting. And, and it started, you know, people started finding out about it in the, in the probably, I would say early eighties, maybe even a few in the late seventies. But if you go back in time and look at some of the aerial photography, there wasn't much to hunt there, right? Even in the early eighties, uh, the wax Delta was very, very small. What looked like little splays, you know, and then, but of course we had, land building through man-made uh, dredging right over on the main delta. Um, and, and then we also needed to work with the core. We realized, or the state realized, we need to start working with the core to start being able to place this material beneficially on the main delta. So the whole area encompasses just under 138,000 acres, which was essentially all of Atchafalaya Bay uh, and, it, and it's comprised of those what we call the Wax Lake Delta and the Main Delta or the Atchafalaya River Delta. You know, over time, the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries promulgated rules and regs for the area, et cetera. And it, it kind of started out because it was a, much like Pasalutra, a tidal area that you could hunt all day kind of thing. Um, and, and that kind of stuck and it was very few people hunted it, right? And then we'll talk a little bit about more. I don't want to jump into, into more of this stuff, but that's essentially how it was formed and how it started. And, and uh, you know, now we look at it back, you know, a few years back when we put some of this information together for, for potential two o'clock closure, we figured it's about 20,000 acres 20 to 30,000 acres now on each delta that's essentially huntable. And that means people that are even going pretty far out in open water, but shallow open water, right? Almost outside of, uh, outside of submerged aquatic vegetation. Uh, so you're looking at about a total of 40 to 50,000 acres, roughly. That, that's essentially hunted for, for waterfowl. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Well, for the most part. Mike, I want to I want to back up here for some some additional orientation. I I oftentimes encourage people to use Google Earth or Google Maps as a resource to help them understand what we're talking about. And this is a perfect example of where the the technology of Google Earth is going to be the best uh, the 
the best platform in this case because, as you mentioned, you can actually use the historical imagery feature in Google Earth to see the formation of these deltas. So in order to find them, people can just uh, enter Chafalaya Bay. And if you can't spell a Chafalaya, you can just enter Morgan City in the search bar and it's going to take you in proximity to that. You back out a bit from Morgan City and you look kind of to the south and slight southwest and you're going to see these two delta splay areas. The one on the right is the Chafalaya River. The one on the left is the or to the west is the Wax Lake outlet. And, and so, Mike, you referenced that. But I want to get you to tell me again about that Wax Lake outlet. Um, people can actually see on their map how it eventually connects up there with an offshoot of the Chafalaya River. Uh, Yellow Bayou is what it's labeled here on my map. Rem- say, tell me again, what was the thinking or the reason behind that cut? I think I know, but I always get this confused in my mind. Well, it was it was flood control for Morgan City, right, to divert some of that Atchafalaya River water that goes right through Morgan City, right, to divert that over to the west and relieve flooding. And to take about 30, the goal was to take about 30% of the flow um, just to relieve that pressure. And that was, again, that was built, it was built in 1942. So this was during during World War II, right? And, and you know, to think that the Corps of Engineers was putting that kind of resource uh, into into dredging this huge uh, channel, a flood relief channel, essentially, is kind of, I, I guess, paints a picture of how serious the flooding events were. And I guess especially since, you know, back in the 27 flood and whatever, and knowing that, that uh, I guess river levels were pretty high and getting getting really worrisome for Morgan City, which was, you know, in those days was starting to, was starting to become a bustling oil and gas, you know, the early in the early days of oil, right? So um, anyway, yeah, so that's that's how it was built and when it was built. And nobody, I guess in those days, you know, nobody had any idea that there was that much sediment that there was going to be coming down and eventually and, you know, after the basin kind of started filling in and, and just making this huge delta, man-made delta over at the Wax Lake. Larry, I have a question for you, I guess, related to this. I want to get your your kind of your, your thoughts on this, your perspective. When we and I, I sort of introduced this a few minutes ago, where when we think about coastal wetland loss in Louisiana, we're seeing losses. We're seeing a negative trend in the southwest and a negative trend in the southeast. But when you look sort of along the central coast, certainly around this basin, uh, it's in depending on the scale at which you look and the bound where you draw the boundaries, you can actually see some gains. When you focus in on the Wax Lake Delta and the Chapalaya Delta, you can you can definitely see the gains. Talk about that, Larry, I guess just from a geologic process standpoint, for the people that may not be familiar with it, I at least want them to come away with some appreciation for what's happening and how it's in contrast to what we're seeing, let's say, to the southeast Louisiana. Can you do that? Oh, absolutely. Um, because it's the process that's important. One of the major problems with with coastal wetland loss, one of the major sources of coastal wetland loss is the deprivation of sediment from the, the marshes alongside of the Mississippi River. We have levied the Mississippi River all the way out to the continental slope. And so a lot of that sediment that used to spill out and form deltas or be pushed to the west via the Coriolis effect to nourish the marshes and the beach ridges as far as, as even southwest Louisiana, all that, that process has been halted. 
by the levee building alongside of the Mississippi River. What the Atchafalaya Basin represents is, is where that process is still functioning, where those marshes have not built out across the continental shelf you know, to the continental slope where it falls into deeper water. And so you're seeing that natural process work. Um, L Louisiana was formed historically by this process of, of deltaic building, of marsh building, then leveling out the flow of the Mississippi River such that pressure builds up further north and that river shifts location to a place where it's going to flow down a steeper grade. And then it builds, it builds land, builds the, the delta until that, until that grade becomes effectively zero. And then the river changes course again. Well, that's been stopped. That's been stopped at its current location. But through the Wax Lake outlet, through the the water, remember, in central Louisiana, we're actually diverting some of the Mississippi River water from the Mississippi down the Atchafalaya. So it's, it's just a, a sort of another tier of diverting water that brings that sediment and that fresh water down the Atchafalaya River. And then the Wax Lake outlet takes a portion of that. And this process is still working. And so we're able to see everybody is able to see um, the, the building of those marshes. You can actually see these two, these two deltas sort of closing in on one another. And it's going to be interesting to see here as this goes forward, if a bay isn't built kind of on the backside in between these two, uh, these two deltas. Is that the way some of these inland bays or these sort of, I shouldn't say inland bays, but some of these inland uh, lakes have formed? Is that what's going to happen there? Do you know what I'm talking about there, Larry? And is that what you would expect? As these two deltas extend, sediment is going to be moved to the west. And so uh, over, over a, a period of time, um, it, it, we may end up with a lake right in between the two. Yeah, so it's really cool to be able to see this uh, in in a relatively short time frame. Mike, you were talking about how the the marshes there in the Atchafalaya Delta didn't really start to show up in in large acreages until what what did you say the 1970s? Well, to the really to the early 80s, you didn't there wasn't a whole lot even in the early 80s. Um, but that's when you first started seeing you know these splays and emergent marsh. Yeah, and a little bit of little bit of land that maybe was going to start becoming willows, right? So in the early 80s, yeah. So I always use the Atchafalaya Delta and the Wax Lake Delta as an example to refute the, that saying, you know, where people oftentimes say, well, they're, they're not building any more land. And when somebody asks you if you should buy property or something like that, the one thing they say, well, the only thing I can tell you is they're not making any more of it. And I say, well, actually, there is one place, at least one place where there is more land being built. And so I guess to transition here, that new land in this in the situation in which it emerges, in which it develops, is incredibly valuable and productive for waterfowl, for other fish, other wildlife, other water birds. And Mike, I want to get you to talk a little about what that habitat looks like. Uh, you've kind of described it a bit already, but what are the what are the dominant plants that emerge? What are the the plants that are most valuable from a waterfowl standpoint that we encounter there on the deltas? 
Okay, Ooh, that's a lot, um, but I will I will start off. So essentially, and what you have now, right? I, I, you know what what you have now is is an older is a building delta, not old delta because it's still new, right? But you look at the heads of the the first splays that formed. So a splay, of course, would be where the first material that Larry was talking about deposited and started building and building, and then those kind of form a V shape, right? And the tops of those are, are the furthest north of those points. Uh, become you know gets higher and higher, slows down more water and builds, and then you, you know it starts off with with being submerged aquatic vegetation, and then transitions into stuff like duck potato or a variety of other Sagittarius species, and then continually uh, builds, and then you start getting woodies uh, like like willows coming in, and then that's kind of the old. Now that's less productive, right? Those they they're higher elevated, they flood a little bit, but not much, and then that Sagittarius and you get elephant ear and other things, they get real high. But the, of course, the, the duck food is, you know, delta duck potato uh, is, is a big one. And then the submerged aquatics and then even an, annual plants, right? The sedges. Um, so it just that transition. But, you know, so that's what you see. You see these older, you know, these older splays, they develop into that. And then you keep building new splays further south and east and west, right? On the wax. That's that's what happens. And then on the on the main delta, you try, we're trying to, or we have tried, and, and the department still tries to mimic that as best they can, right? In the confines of working working with the Corps of Engineers. Through, through the beneficial use process of dredging and placing that material, but trying to build somewhat these V-shaped uh, islands. But of course, you're starting at about a plus four foot elevation, right? Um, but you're, you, and then you're cutting it to, to start trying to mimic that process, but you've, you've just, you know, enhanced it greatly in, in terms of time uh, and not nearly as productive if you ask me, but, but you get that, you know, the back ends of that, that becomes more natural on the main Delta, that becomes more of a, of a wax type system, right? More of a natural system. Uh, but the diversity, you know, plant materials, phenomenal. And, and obviously the waterfowl found it, right? They, you know, they, and, and duck, Delta duck potato was the big thing. Those tubers that, that, uh, that they produce are highly desirable. Uh, mallards used to love them. You would, you would find the tubers in their, in their, um, throats and, and canvas back. And you could watch birds just, just really, um, make craters out of those flats. It was pretty impressive. On a low tide, you could go out there and look like the surface of the moon um, from those those birds just digging into that substrate and, and digging up these tubers. But um, there's just, there's no shortage. And I could go on and on, but I'll shut up. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just, uh, it's so dynamic. And uh, and it's just getting bigger, you know, every Every day, it's still growing, um, and it's just a different process. And you talked about looking at Google Earth, and it's really cool because the other thing you can see is you can see through time the man-made portion of the main delta. You can see that clear, uh, looks like white, right? It's the sand um, that was newly deposited on some of the new splays that they were that they were new deposit areas that they're building. Um, so you can watch kind of how that progressed too. Um, and then how that was planned and, and uh, to try to take advantage of like y'all were talking about earlier, that some of that space between the two deltas, which, you know, it's tough to get the core to go far out. Right. They're looking for the cheapest place to, to go and the closest. 
Um, but it's something that you negotiate and try to work with to try to expand that and not build high, but build bigger and build essentially wider and, and uh, at a greater scale. When you say the main delta, you're talking about the delta off of the, the Atchafalaya River. Uh, and you actually can, as you pointed out here, you can go to Google Earth and see the difference in the formation of these two deltas, the Wax Lake being uh, less touched by, by human activities, uh, so dredging, uh, anything of that nature does not occur over there. But that is when you talk about the core and their activities on the main delta, that's associated with the navigation interest. I know you in- introduced that at the beginning, but oftentimes, because there are so many complexities in these stories, I like to pause occasionally and just make sure people are following the story. Uh, so we've got the, the main delta, the Chapalaya River, and, and there are some different, uh, different processes there. And, and they show up visibly. It's, it's truly a remarkable area. Um, let's see, Mike, another question about the vegetation. Do we have, these are freshwater systems. We could have this water coming out, uh, out of the, the channels. And so we're primarily talking about freshwater plants. Do we have invasive uh, aquatic plants that are very problematic down there uh, at either of these deltas? Well, I, I guess the one that sticks out the most would be water hyacinth, right? When it when it comes from essentially coming from the north, uh, a lot of it coming through the basin, basin or in the wax from that adjacent marsh to the north. Uh, you know, when that with that flow, uh, all of that freshwater flow coming out, it pushes a lot of that. And I know Larry's, you know, as a, as an old hunter on a chaff line, he's he's fought rafts of water hyacinth coming in, and I mean they'll come in and take your decoys. But that that's the worst um, in terms of invasives. Not much in terms of uh, like Salvinia, some of the other local uh, issues that we're having in the coast now with with Salvinia. Uh, don't see too much of that because it's a, it's more of a tidal system, right? And it, it can get flushed out a little bit easier as does the water hyacinth, but it, it can get in there and it can choke off some of the, the good uh, submerged aquatic vegetation. Well, I think that's one of the reasons the tidal movement and the river flow, they create hydrologic dynamics in the area that keep either water hyacinth or salvinia from just sitting, resting, uh, blocking light transmission because they're always being moved around. And so you, you see less of, a, of an effect on the production of valuable resources um, like the sedges, duck potato, uh, and especially submerged aquatics uh, on that particular management area. When you think about these these deltas, what are the primary species that come to mind or are there any one or two that that are notable or they're just is it is it uh just a great diversity it's more diverse now than it was in the past i believe um my experience at Atchafalaya delta starts in uh in january of 1990. um mike is exactly right uh delta duck potato was probably the most valuable food species out there at low tide the the shape of those mud flats was intriguing because of the way those birds foraged. So now think about the species that can forage on subterranean tubers like that. It was typically mallards, pintails, and canvasbacks. Um, the, the early years of my hunting out there, those were the species that we focused on. And then as time went on, even, even in the short, relatively short period of time of, of Mike and, and my hunting out there, um, as that deltaic system matured, or at least 
some of the areas matured, uh, more submerged aquatics, um, higher elevations led to more sedge uh, production. Uh, there was actually a spot on the main delta that, that I referred to as the sedge flat. Well, now you've got food resources that are, that are far more attractive and available to green-winged teal, blue-winged teal, uh, gadwalls using the submerged aquatics. And so now, 30 years after I started hunting there, um, our, our bag check data is, is dominated more by the, the teal and, and gadwalls and less so by mallards and pintails. Now, that's, as you have already indicated, there are multiple factors driving that. But one of the factors is the, the evolving structure of the habitat. Um, canvasbacks still pretty much show up in these, uh, uh, in those, in these deltaic systems. Canvasbacks are still very important um, on those habitats, but mallards and pintails are less important. Um, gadwall and green wings are more important. Um, and another thing that's really key, Mike, is that if you wanted to see big flocks of model ducks, September and early October in the Atchafalaya Delta, on both the Wax and the Main Delta, that was the place to go. They would gather in huge flocks at the edge of those splays that Mike talked about. And that just doesn't happen anymore. Larry, it's interesting that you mentioned that about model ducks. I certainly know, the three of us all know, that the Chafalaya Delta was an area where a lot of model duck research occurred back in the day. A good friend of ours, Dr. Frank Rower, uh, was involved in some of that research. And so it's kind of interesting to hear you say that things have changed, at least with regard to the concentrations of model ducks that you saw there. And and so this is uh, a good segue when we start talking about waterfowl, um, waterfowl abundance and some changes in those waterfowl abundances and perhaps even waterfowl behavior maybe kind of falls into this category and there's a lot to discuss there we uh, it, it's apparent to me at this point that we're going to need to make a couple of episodes out of this so we haven't even gotten into uh, into covering the the abundances of waterfowl as we began to see them develop there on the on either of the deltas as those things started to grow and the habitat resources food resources became more abundant and then of course the the waterfowl hunting that resulted and success of those waterfowl hunting efforts and then how things changed through time in response to a few uh, advances and innovations and just how, how waterfowl hunting changed in general in, in, in that region in response to some of those innovations. So uh, if you guys are, are up for it, I think we'll close out this episode and um, tell folks to join us on the next episode because we've got a lot of stories to share there about your prior hunting experiences and uh, a bit of, uh, you know, speculation, you might say. Three scientists will have an opportunity here to speculate on what might be behind some of those changes. You guys sound okay with that? Sure. Yeah. Sounds good, Mike. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Larry Reynolds with LDWF and Mike Carlos with Ducks Unlimited Southern Region down in Lafayette, Louisiana. We appreciate their insight and expertise on the Atchafalaya Delta. It's certainly a neat place and enjoy bringing this short this story to you. As always, we thank our producer for the work that he does in getting these podcasts out to you. And of course, to our listeners, we thank you for your interest and your investment of time in this resource. And we thank you for your support of wetlands conservation.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.